Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, it's good to be with you, especially on this special Shabbos and weekend. Oh, no question about that. You're obviously referring to the big Purim miracle of Israel in the World Baseball Classic, I would guess, right? That's one point. <laughs> but I know this must be your favorite juntif, so I figure this is... Well, it's certainly up there. <laughs> I, I think I've declared that Yom Kippur actually is my favorite juntif. So this is like Yom Kippurim, right? They're very related Purim and the Yom Kippur, so... I guess that qualifies, but uh, but yes, let's 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 acknowledge this incredible time of year and how celebratory it is and how wonderful it is for the Jewish people. Hopefully, this month of Adar will continue to be a great month for everybody, and we wish a very very big Mazal Tov and congratulations to Team Israel in the World Baseball Classic. Isn't it funny? You you've discussed with us, by the way, on a serious note, how important sports and other cultural activities are. When it comes to uh, international relations, when it comes to the political scene, isn't it incredible how impressions of a country can change, whether they have a good team or bad team in a tournament? Yeah, and tournaments sometimes are political negotiations, or they can be a session at the U.N., right. but, the, yeah, the team they have often makes a big difference. It really is unbelievable. Anyway, continue to wish them good luck. All right, uh, you came out with a statement, and there's uh, no doubt that it's certainly a... Uh, uh, probably the major topic in terms of um, what continues to dominate the news, and that is the uh, anti-Semitic episodes. He's really hit home in this area because of this past weekend, what happened in the cemetery in Brooklyn, and yesterday the evacuation of the Jewish Children's Museum in Crown Heights. I'm referring, of course, to the uh, to the efforts to protect Jewish communal institutions. And you and the uh, members of the conference and the leadership of the Conference of Presidents welcomed the unanimous United States Senate letter to uh, the Justice Department. This was 100 senators behind the effort for more federal help, right? Absolutely. And tell me when today you see 100 senators agree on anything. So I think that this is, uh, you know, it's an important declaration. And, and it is an, a very important aspect of how you fight this is to show that this is beyond the pale, that this is not acceptable, that there's no excuses for it. And it means that everybody in the positions of influence, and it goes to your baseball teams as well, that sports figures and others who, who influence how young people act and who, and even if this is not committed by young people, but some of the copycatting is, and more importantly is that we have so much of this on campus today uh, under the guise of BDS, which is, I've said all along to you and, to, and on the show, that it's, it's a core anti-Semitic. Semitic, and I believe it's responsible for some of the escalation, right. clearly not all, mm -hmm. and it certainly uh, was exacerbated during the very heated uh, presidential election, and uh, I think it's ridiculous when people talk about President Trump as an anti-Semite or others as anti-Semites. We have to be very careful when you use the term, but this is a, 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 I called it a pandemic because it starts in Europe. It's like a virus that goes across borders, and then if you don't stop it, if you don't find the antidotes, if you don't really declare war on it, then it just keeps spreading and getting more severe and more immune to, to criticism and to, to the um, inoculations that, that one would have. So it means education, it means, and, and that is why the letter which you saw last week, the press conference we did it right after the show uh, with uh, Carolyn Maloney and others to to call on the Department of Education 
to adopt the definition of anti-Semitism. So there's a standard to which you can hold, especially universities, but also others. It, it has to be rooted out. You have to have a zero-tolerance policy. You don't exaggerate it. And I think, you know, we have to have, uh, you use um, our intelligence to know when to speak out, when not to speak out, how far do you go? Do you just invite copycatting? Do you, um, it, it, the people who are responsible don't need excuses to do it. Right. Anti-Semites never needed excuses. But w- what we have to do is, and I think we've seen it, at the, certainly NYPD has done a great job, other police forces, and around the country, when you see how many non-Jews of all kinds came out to clean up cemeteries to respond to the attacks, uh, I think that's a very important statement to to counter all this. Yeah, no question about it. You use the word pandemic, and it's funny you use that word because I was thinking early this morning going through the news that you can't keep track of it anymore between the college campuses, between what's happening uh, with anti, um, anti-Israel anti movements, whether it's in England, seems to always be in England, uh, other European countries. Uh, it, it's a wave that just continues, and as you say, it's simply dressing up the anti-Semitic feelings that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, dominate so many areas uh, worldwide. But, but Nahum, yesterday alone, or in 24 hours, um, the Spain's ruling party rejected BDS, the... the uh, uh, at, it, at its uh, ordinary Congress, the Partido Popular, the People's Party, uh, that is the ruling party in Spain, approved amendments that explicitly rejected BDS. The same time, the Swiss National Council called for an end to government funding for NGOs and non-governmental bodies that um, uh, support BDS. And at the same time, you had the New York State Senate, and you had... Uh, other states now, again, considering uh, anti-BDS uh, uh, legislation in Britain, adopted anti-BDS uh, measures. So we are seeing, on the other hand, a, a clear response. And legislation is not uh, an end-all to things, but it is important because it gives a tool to people. And when political parties and others say this is beyond the pale, and when you have others who continue to say, well, I'm only for BDS against the West Bank, I'm only for BDS against the products from the West Bank, That that those lines and distinctions right. are not meaningful. And it's, you know, I, I don't want to get to your Purim message yet, <laughs> but, it, but, it's, it, but think about it. Think about it in the context of history. You have local, state, and national governments who are going out of their way to go ahead and... and and declare that Jews have to be protected or that BDS movements won't be tolerated. And when you think about it in the context of history, especially with this weekend coming up, it, it's really, it can be baffling when you think about it. it. It is a change. And look what the Governor Cuomo did. He flew off to Israel for a day as the ultimate expression of solidarity and also allocated additional funds. The federal government is, there's measures now to double from 20 to $40 million, which is still a drop in the bucket for what is needed, funds for you know, the camera security, we, we need to bump it up much more. Britain and France allocated huge sums of money to their communities to enhance security. I think, you know, I think institutions that we have prodded all along to deal with security are, are now doing so on our scanus.org website. People can go to it, scanus.org, especially those who, who work in schools or schools or other places where people gather. Uh, you know, that the threats may not seem serious because, thank God, none of them were actualized. But the impact is real. And it is already that people, 
kid, uh, people are afraid to go to these places or to participate in communal events or register their kids for next year. Uh, these are real and concrete consequences without ever having to uh, suffer the, the, a real attack so far. So the and and the likelihood is that this will continue and the community gets on edge because of it. It, it has a deleterious impact regardless. Yeah. And there was some skepticism. You brought up the Cuomo trip. There was some skepticism, you know, running for president, all that. I don't know. Like you just said, it seemed to me not only a sincere gesture, but an important one. And one where he included so many different things in that one day he was there. I mean, it looked like he was really trying to make a statement and continue the solidarity between New York State and Israel. So call a vote to him. Kudos and- to and he announced the, the commission, which right. I'm privileged to be one of the co-chairs, the New York State-Israel Commission, which is an ongoing effort and something that's been in the works for a long time. So it had nothing to do with a presidential race because I know how long he's discussed it and wanted to implement it. And I think that that you know, indicates there's something beyond it. If you want to make grants, then he could just as easily visited a number of local communities. And and I think when you see what the uh, Commissioner O'Neill, the police commissioner, the commitment that the departments make to this, and we know that others in New Jersey also undertook to, to provide additional assistance to communities. This is not... The reaction is not an isolated one. And even in the case of the individuals, when a woman takes sanitizer and a tissue to start scrubbing in a subway, and then one by one, everybody follows her until the whole car is engaged in in that kind of an effort. And the stories everywhere around the country that we have heard about how, how much support, especially when you're in a JCC in a small Jewish community, where you don't have the support systems that we have in New York, there, that kind of reaction is really critical to their ability to function and to and their sense of security. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, so uh, David Friedman makes it through the committee yesterday. If I'm not mistaken, Senator Menendez is the only Democrat to have voted for him in committee. Is that correct? I believe so. I think it's, they said there was only one Democrat. Yeah. And I point that out because, I mean, look, you know, who am I to analyze what someone's political intentions are? But he did vote against the Iran deal, I believe, Senator Menendez, I'm almost sure. And yes, he did, absolutely. Right, and then this yesterday, I, I don't know, again, you know, it, it's more, I think it's more political than, than uh, you know, um, uh, than, than, you know, voting for, um, I think it's, I, I think people are basically voting along political lines when it comes to this appointment. Sure. Or, or this nomination. Oh, on every nomination, right? And everything that comes exactly. up right now is divided. But still, but still, I think that he's got to be recognized for uh, going out of the way yet on another occasion. And I'm assuming that that when the full Senate vote comes, it'll it'll like likely be along party lines, right? One would figure. Yeah. One can anticipate that, but <laughs> right. getting out of committee means that I think the pretty sure that oh, it'll yeah. be approved. <laughs> I agree with that. It's just uh, interesting to see who lines up where. Uh, and how this appointment becomes a because you know, everyone it, 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 there's a word I'm trying to to, to find. <laughs> everyone thinks it has to do with one's uh, um, with one's opinion regarding Israel, but in reality, as we know or as we see, it, it just it's it's a political battle that you know the Republicans in this case happen to win. So you're right, and they they you know ideology. That's the word, ideology. People think it's an ideological battle. It's more just a political battle to see who wins. By and large. Yes, by and large is right. Um, so in uh, in Israel, we, we find out about the uh, BDS travel ban. This is a new 
law, those who are uh, outspoken BDSers uh, are going to be banned from Israel, essentially, right? Those who lead uh, the BDS uh, efforts, it's not just uh, some followers. I think it applies to those who are um, promoters of it. And well, I, I'm sure other countries act similarly to those who, who would profess to boycott, who, who denounce Israel. You know, why, why are they coming to Israel? Why they come there just to create problems or to, to demonstrate? And on the other hand, it becomes a free speech issue, and you see the reaction that some academics and others said, well, we can't go to Israel anymore. Um, and it comes within the context of, of other moves that they are trying to portray this all as, as some sort of a right-wing as right-wing um, extremism. But in fact, there is a, a legitimate issue about those who, who, who exploit these issues, those who are leading the boycott uh, efforts. And, uh, you know, that has to be done with, with Seichel and with uh, intelligence about how do, you, how do you promote this. All right. The bill, the law itself, um, can, can as, as I think you just described, can be misconstrued can certainly be misunderstood. Right. And Israel and, you know, th those of us who always are hesitant to call for a clear boycott or a clear ban puts itself, I believe, in a, in, in a relatively precarious position right now with this new law. Uh, do you agree that this is, that, that it might have been better to not actually have an official law like this on the books? It may be not to legislate it. You don't have to have a law for everything you can there are other ways of regulating and it should be applied in extreme cases um and the uh, so i agree basically <laughs> okay and i i say this in light of the fact that you and i often have agreed that we hesitate to boycott or ban others especially since our people are often the subject of boycotts and bans bds itself right. bds itself is essentially a boycott and ban movement. So we are countering that movement, or Israel is in this case, governmentally, officially, with a boycott and ban. And I don't know if fighting fire with fire in this case is the best idea. And well, we're seeing by the reaction that uh, it's had some negative ramifications, but that too will pass. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline with us as Purim approaches. He is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. It, one of the things that, uh, oh, by the way, before I leave the Israeli law thing, there is now, I, I think I saw this in the New York Times, actually, there's a loudspeaker rule that's being proposed for, for, for those that have walked around cities in Israel and have sometimes been annoyed, I guess would be the right word, by the loud loudspeakers for calls to prayer, not in the Jewish tradition. Uh, this could be, as much as some of us might, you know, might welcome this law, this could be a real political football, no? It is already, and uh, there already is a reaction. We had some mayors where they uh, ordered uh, the, the um, volume to be raised, and anybody, especially in Jerusalem or other cities where there are mosques near the hotels and, and early morning calls to prayer at 5 o'clock, 5.30, even earlier, um, are, to say the least, annoying to people. Uh, but at the same time, you have religious sensitivities uh, involved. So the measure was really just to regulate the volume. It wasn't to pre prevent people 
from having the right to have the call to prayer and to have uh, um, and, and for it to be audible. It was a question of the volume, and then, but like everything else, becomes then a political football that they're trying to limit religious rights and religious freedoms and stuff. And I know that there were attempts made to try to do this without legislation in, in places, and uh, the reaction, as I said, was often the contrary, where they would just exacerbate the problem. Right. So this is this was an attempt just to set some uh, a level of of uh, how loud it could be, rather than to prevent it. Yeah, well, nonetheless, it's never interpreted that way, so we'll see what happens. That's all right. Um, all right, I know I ask you this a lot. Um, another meeting this week between the Prime Minister of Israel and Vladimir Putin. Uh, it happened yesterday. Um, essentially, I mean, the news reports say that the Prime Minister spent time speaking about the dangers of Iran, speaking about the uh, buildup that ISIS has or potentially could have in Syria, um, is there a way, and I know that this could be, you know, a, a book or two, uh, so it may not be easy to answer, you know, in one fell swoop, but is there a way to describe this relationship now between Israel and Russia, between Netanyahu and Putin? Are they allies? Are they, are they, you know, are they holding each other, you know, at, at, at arm's length while each one sees what the other is going to be doing in the Middle East? Would these meetings be taking place if Russia did not have the influence in Syria that it has? How would you describe it? I think all the things you just said are probably true simultaneously that the, you know, I think Putin is somebody who pursues interests. He has designs. He wants to have a permanent presence in Syria. That's why he's building the Air Force Base, the Naval Base, to keep his presence there. Number one, number two, he wants to remain an influential partner, and he is partnering, obviously, with Assad. But the other partner is Iran, and that is what is most disturbing. It's not the ISIS buildup, it's Hezbollah buildup, and the fact that Iranians and IRGC, other presence, Iran Revolutionary Guard, uh, moving closer to the Golan, more weapons going into Lebanon, even though Israel has eliminated many of those uh, shipments, but we know that Hezbollah in Lebanon has received a lot of equipment. They're still getting funding from Iran. Iran is uh, is acting in a more and more aggressive way, and yet they're partnering with uh, with the Russians in, and in Syria. They're they're building their crescent that goes through Iraq and through Syria to the to Lebanon to the Mediterranean. Uh, so they're looking for a permanent presence. And for me, it's hard to separate the two. That if you are partnering with them, and if you're going to ensure, and I think Netanyahu went there to try to make sure that Iran is not allowed a permanent presence, that um, Nikki Haley, in fact, called for yesterday the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. for the Iranians to get out or other uh, to get out uh, once there is a deal in Syria. But the the um, the Russians, as as you see, that in in many places they're becoming more aggressive. They want to build a base in Libya. He he uh, has a vision of of extending the influence and in Russia's footprint, both in the Middle East and in broader terms. It's also a strike against the West. It's and remembering that he did all of this on a shoestring economy. That he he, he has about thirty six planes in. Syria. That's it. We have hundreds of them. We spend billions. He spent a fraction of it, and he is he is doing it in other areas as well, trying to fill voids of that the U.S. Uh, left, making uh, deals with whoever will sign up with him and who who whoever pursues the direction that serves the interest that he has has identified. So I think Netanyahu was there 
to put down some markers about continued coordination and cooperation to avoid friendly fire in Syria, number one. Number two, about the rules that Israel, the, the minimal demands that Israel has to make about the transfer of weapons, and to to talk about that if there is a peace deal, that, that the Golan is not part of any negotiations. Malcolm, if someone asked you if Israel and Russia, uh, Netanyahu and Putin, now have common goals, common aims in the Middle East, you would say more yes than no? Well, it depends what day, but I would say <coughs> that they do have, uh, they, they did say that they had some common understandings about things, but I think that it, it shifts all the time. You know, we, we have common interests with Egypt, but uh, Egypt now is flirting with Iran because their big threat is the Sunni extremists, and so they're looking to build coalitions with them as opposed to with Saudi Arabia and others um, at, at a cost, perhaps, of that relationship. So everybody has shifting interests, and... The, you know, every country has interests that they pursue in in uh, in different ways to to enhance their position or whatever. We see how Iran force ships off course. We see Iran, you know, firing a ballistic missile. Uh, so much more that they're doing that is super aggressive, and and directly or or with their their proxies. We see how they've heated up the situation with the Houthis and at the Straits of uh, Baba Mandab which we warned about for many, many years here. So, the, uh, you know, the, there is no straight course for any country or any alliance in the Middle East or perhaps anywhere in the world today. And Russia looks to exploit opportunities. It's looking to, to make gains. Iran, for instance, is now forcing its way more and more into African countries. And, and there are reports from Nigeria and Mali and, and Mauritania, Burkina Faso, and other places, um, as well as even in China and uh, across the globe. And they will do that as long as they're allowed to. And if they have, it serves their purpose to have a good relationship with with Russia, they will do that, even if ideologically they could be in opposite poles. When the United States sends troops, in this case Marines, to Syria, it's specifically to fight ISIS and to essentially stay out of other battles? Right now, today, uh, ISIS has been declared the primary target and purpose for it. Uh, I think Hezbollah poses as great a problem, and, and now with uh, Michel Aoun as president of Lebanon, and, 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 and he is in league with Hezbollah, Hezbollah is now part of the, of the Iranian government, of the Lebanese government, and, and Iran's presence there, uh, that, that the... Um, uh, we see a shift in, in the power and, and what is happening in terms of Hezbollah becoming more of a threat, and they have thousands of troops. They've suffered the loss of thousands of troops, maybe 2,000 more or more in Syria. So ISIS is increasingly being forced out of Raqqa, which was their capital. They've moved to other cities in Iraq and Syria. Some of them have gone back home to their native lands, especially in Europe, and this poses a huge threat, as we've warned for many, many years that this would happen. And the uh, so U.S. targeting ISIS is important. We want to see ISIS defeated. But not the question is, who will fill the void? Right. And that's why Netanyahu is also in Russia. Wow. Uh, so much to think about. It's unbelievable. There's, a, there's an election coming up in a couple of months in Iran. Does that matter? Sure, it matters. And, and 
you know, the, the, there's no certainty about succession and what will happen. And we know there's a lot of dissent. And unfortunately, the, the, the dissenters in Iran get no support from the West. I hope that this administration will, will do more and help them uh, and provide assistance uh, to them, because I think that's really the way to make a change there. Uh, there's also an election coming up in, in uh, Turkey, and not because they care so much about the voters. You know, there are three million Turks in Germany. That's why Erdogan was there campaigning and the and asserting the Turkish uh, presence and even going against the government of, of Merkel, who was critical of, of some of the things that he did in his presence. <laughs> but, you know, this is part of the change, the shift in Europe. The second biggest voting district in, in the Turkish election is Germany. Wow. There's three million people. Turks who, who live there and they can vote from outside. So, and they're building mosques and he has aggressive campaign of building mosques in Europe. This is Turkey, not Iran. Iran also. But you see how aggressive everybody is. They're trying to stake their, their cards down and, and whatever they can grab, they grab. And they the, the one thing that is an asset is that the new administration at least is seen as tougher one of the Iranian officials said this yesterday, and certainly less predictable. And uh, a lack of predictability is an asset in these cases. If they believe that the administration could really act and, and will really act, that's an important asset. The campaign in Iran is hinged on the changes um, and the, the, the change and or the stagnation of the economy in Iran in light of the Iran nuclear deal with the U.S. and other powers, correct? That's, that's a big topic, a big uh, campaign topic right now. The economy is a big issue, and because the money that came in uh, mostly went uh, first and foremost to IGC and the Supreme Leader, who control about 30 to 40 percent of the economy, it did not benefit the people. It went to Hezbollah, it went to supporting their terrorist activities, it went to Iran's terrorist activities, it went to support their export of weapons, development of weapons, um, and the people feel the, the, are suffering under the yoke of this economic uh, distress. And yesterday Khamenei spoke about it and critic, was critical of Rouhani, uh, essentially saying to me, I've got to get to energy, to, to economic independence, and you're not doing enough, etc. So yes, it's a very sensitive uh, subject for them. Uh, and while election outcomes can be somewhat controlled there, maybe not somewhat, they... Um, the fact is that they are concerned about about what the public reaction is. Wow. Um, the Daily Alert, your Daily Alert, just came across our desk now for today, and it says that uh, John Miller, has, uh, head of police intelligence at the NYPD, is indicating that one person might be responsible for all of these bomb threats. And, and when he means all, he's not just referring to the one arrest that was made and the variety of ones he was responsible for. I'm assuming he means all collectively, right, that, that everything we're seeing now, even today, could be the responsibility of one person. One or two, uh, when I asked the commissioner about this yesterday, uh, he indicated, and, and while they don't know who yet who did it, uh, the indication is that, that there it, it's not necessarily multiple people. It doesn't take much to get online and get the phone numbers for JCCs or other I know, but it, but it, it seems to us that it does take much not to be found, not to be traced. I mean, 
you know. So that's, that is the big question, and it's an unfair criticism, I think, of the FBI saying, well, why don't they have the technology, et cetera? Because as much as their technology improves, so do the guys who carry this out. It doesn't take much to, to hide the identity. Eventually, they'll catch him. You'll, they'll find him. They caught this guy, this one guy, but he, right. he was signing off on the things he was doing. So it was a little hard not to find him. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> he gave he, himself he, up. <laughs> he gave the name of his girlfriend and blamed <laughs> her and of his former girlfriend. Uh, so... I think that the the um, the likelihood is that they have some information. I was told by another source that it was a foreign. It's likely to be be a foreign origin, which again we have no not heard any confirmation of, but it came from a very reliable law enforcement source. Wow! So we'll have to see. I mean, they are working on it. I think the resources are being applied to it. Um, and we have to remember about the infrastructure. You know, there's a trial going on in Brooklyn, and nobody, almost nobody pays any attention to the trial of Ibrahim Suleiman Adnan Aden, who who was responsible for the uh, uh, killing two, two U.S. servicemen in Afghanistan, and I think a plot to blow up the U.S. embassy in Nigeria or, or other things. Uh, and it, it, a trial going on there of this importance, and nobody's nobody covers it from what I can see. All right. Well, not surprising that the uh, the press uh, avoids certain stories. Um, the President of the United States will speak for the first time to Mahmoud Abbas. I didn't even realize that they had not spoken since the election, or since the inauguration, I should say. Uh, and the, Nikki Haley, uh, U.S. envoy to the U.N., of course, is calling for direct negotiations between Israel and and the PA uh, indicating that the UN should not be counted on to intervene or to uh, negotiate any type of deal. I, I would guess, and, and I don't think people realize how different, I, how I believe, uh, how different this is from the previous White House. Because, you know, one of the things Israel has always said, always indicated, and the Prime Minister has said in many speeches, there should be direct negotiations, and he welcomes them at any time. He's continuously, you know, inviting Abbas to, to the negotiating table. And uh, I think if, uh, if the American officials, White House and UN, and beyond can eliminate the need for other countries or an EU or a, uh, uh, what they call the four? What they call the, uh, the, I can't think the of it. Quartet. The quartet. Thank you. The quartet. Yeah, that was a hard one. <laughs> thank you. <Yes. laughs> or, hey, it's the end of the week. Uh, the quartet or, you know, or any other party. I, I think that's real progress, frankly. So, she, she has made many statements, not just that, and we should look at what she said when she finished her meeting with the Palestinian representative when she came out again uh, with a very pro-Israel statement and, and has been critical of them. Uh, uh, this is the first conversation between the president and President Abbas. I don't know if he'll call collect when he calls today, but I, uh, I think this is, uh, and the president has talked about Negotiations, and he in fact is sending a special envoy, uh, Jason Greenblatt, to to the Middle East. I think next week, and one of his responsibilities was supposed to be negotiations. Uh, so, uh, the the president has always talked about the art of the deal. That's that is his specialty, and and may feel that there's an opportunity now, as do many in the Middle East, because of the turmoil, because of the shifting alliances, because of the new relationship with some of the neighbors, that maybe there's an opportunity. And the real test is to see whether the Palestinians are ready to come to the table. And the uh, I'm sure Netanyahu would be, and given all of his internal political problems, he probably welcome the, uh, uh, that right. kind of a development. Right. 
I agree. So, so she, she, her statements uh, have been uh, very strong, but she has, again, called for uh, the negotiations. Um, well, there's so many other things, but uh, I want to get to your Purim message. Let me just mention Hamas, the Palestinian Islamist group that has governed the Gaza Strip for a decade. Is dra- this is according to the New York Times, is drafting a new platform to present a more pragmatic and cooperative face to the world. The document would represent a departure from the group's 1988 charter in which it promised to obliterate Israel and characterize its struggle and speci- as specifically against Jews. The new document defines Hamas's enemies as occupiers. Is this going to show a more pragmatic and cooperative face to the world, Malcolm? I don't know. I think, uh, you know, often these are semantic games that are played. Um, what the substantive things will be demonstrated about what people do when put to the test, not you know, when they, uh, I guess it, it is significant if you legislate things that, that indicate a change, but but we see in the behavior that there's no change. That's for sure. And North Korea, is anybody doing more missile tests in North Korea? Or they just make, or they just sometimes make the headlines and the others don't? Well, the Iranians are still continuing missile testing. The, the uh, North Koreans, because it's particularly sensitive, and because they fire it into economic orders that are uh, declared economic orders of Japan, you know, that there are two borders. You have a maritime reach, which is usually 12 miles, and then you have the economic interest, which is really the division between a country and the country on the other side or the nearest country, and it's a line drawn in the middle, and that's called your economic interests uh, waters. And and um, and so they're firing into the, these waters, and you know that they're, they're threatening. It's provocative. Even China coming down pretty tough on them. Because uh, it's very destabilizing, and America sent new equipment to to South Korea. Uh, it, it is not to be dismissed because I don't know that anybody knows what this guy really has in mind. Uh, the leader of North Korea. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Purim message as we uh, approach the big holiday. Uh, what should we be keeping in mind about the past while we examine our present and think about our future? Because it's the only way to understand everything that's going on. If you, you know, exceed your limit for uh, alcohol consumption, maybe you'll get to understand this world a little better. But there is something that I, I think people forget when, when, um, when they they ordered the rebuilding of Yushalayim during the exile in Babylonia, etc. When they were in Iran under Ahasuerus who succeeded uh, uh, Darius the Great, uh, they, <coughs> they offered to, to, they wanted to see the rebuilding of the Jewish homeland. And he recognized Jerusalem as the capital. This is 586 B.C. The Balfour of his day. Well, yes, but it, it, and it's 2,500 years ago. Yep. And people today who still deny, and here you have, and clear documentation, because we have the text, we know what he said, that he was recognizing Jerusalem as the Jewish capital, let alone the rebuilding of the Jewish homeland, to terms that they used. And yet the world today, and coming up to the 50th anniversary, and I hope everybody is going to be joining in every synagogue, every school, every community, will have a celebration and remind children and young people and older people about the privilege we have of having uh, Yerushalayim back in our hands. And this is not necessarily the, the core of, of the Megillah, but it struck me as I, I was uh, reading about some of the period at the time and the, and the real developments that went on uh, about what uh, about this message 
that get shunted aside. And then the other message, because the clearest message of of the Siantav and is necessary more now than any time I can remember, and that is of Achdus in a Jewish community. We are we are allowing ourselves to be rent apart politically and over uh, ideological differences or, or issues that, that arise. And while people can legitimately have those differences and should ex- can express them in responsible ways, right now, right now, we need to be united and, and going to government, whether it's to support our institutions, to protect them, to help in tuition, to help on all the other things that, that we need, and to stand with Israel. Because people think that right now, because it's relatively quiet, we didn't even get into some of the challenges that still confront, and especially when you think of the power that Hezbollah has and Hamas's growing power and Iran's extending influence uh, in, in, on both sides of, of Israel, that we really have to lech kenosis kolayudim. We need to gather all of the Jews and stand together. Well said. Have a wonderful Purim. We'll speak, uh, please God, next week. Thank you. Have a good job. There he is. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, there he is Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.